Hey, you spooky good humans. Welcome back to Murdered Missing. I'm your host, Nicole, and as you can tell from my voice, I have been a little sick. So let's dive into a little bit of business. For those of you who are in the Facebook group, um, you will know that my youngest child has come down with meningitis and strep throat, and my entire household, every single adult, got COVID. And I unfortunately had the worst of it. I was actually in the hospital because uh, I was having some trouble breathing. And um, I'm sure you can probably hear that I'm still sick and I'm still trying to recover from this bout of COVID. Um, this is actually my fifth bout and it kind of sucks. Um, this has been the worst one by far. I officially have lost all sense of taste and all sense of smell, unfortunately. Um, and I <coughs> still struggle to take a deep breath, um, and not run out of air <coughs> when, um, talking, which, uh, is what a podcast is, is me talking to you guys. And it has been very, very difficult. Um, I've actually been sitting on this episode for the past three weeks and have been trying to get it out and trying to get it put together, but I just, I keep coughing. <coughs> uh, excuse me, as you can hear, um, and just have been exhausted. Um, my energy levels have been really low in most days, um, especially with working. It's just been a struggle and I've kind of been falling asleep really early every night, um, and it's just, it's really hard. Um, during the worst part of the, the COVID sickness, I actually had 104 fever and, um, my husband had to help me go to the bathroom, unfortunately, um, because I was just so weak. It was, it was really bad. I am starting to kind of get a little bit better. Um, so this week you're actually going to get two episodes. You're going to get this one and then you're going to get the normal one on Wednesday. Um, just because I'm kind of starting to round that corner and, you know, I'm trying to get back on track. So that is all the business that I have for you guys today. And we're actually going to jump into this week's case. And this week we are going to be discussing the disappearance of Lauren Spear, who went missing in June of 2011 from, um, her college campus. She actually disappeared off the college campus, but she was very close to the campus. And this case has a really, really detailed timeline. And I'm going to be covering that entire timeline, some theories, just everything and anything that I could find on this case. I am going to be covering that with you guys. Now, I do want to give a warning. There <clears throat> is a little bit of victim blaming, in my opinion, <clears throat> in the later portion of the investigation on some individual's parts. Not mine, not yours, not Lauren's family, but there is somebody very close to this case that does do a touch of victim blaming. I am not blaming Lauren for her disappearance. I am not blaming Lauren at all. I want that to be known. I am simply giving you guys the facts and telling you everything from start to finish. But 
I do want to you guys to be aware that there will be a tinge of victim blaming. It is not coming from me and I hope it does not come from my listeners at all, but it's there. And unfortunately it is part of the case and it does need to be told. And with that said, let's dive in. Lauren Spear was born on January 17th, 1991, and she was finishing up her sophomore year at Indiana University in Bloomington, and she was studying apparel merchandising at the time of her disappearance. Now, Lauren was actually a native of Scarsdale, New York, and she had a tight group of friends, both on and off campus and even back home in Scarsdale. And since her disappearance on June 3rd, 2001, it has sparked a lot of media coverage, both locally and nationally. And her case was even covered by Nancy Grace, People's Magazine, and America's Most Wanted. Yet, very few leads have been generated, and the biggest question still remains. Where is Lauren? Now, our story starts on June 3rd, 2011, when we get the very first piece of surveillance footage that we are going to talk about in this week's episode. And this video footage actually captures Lauren leaving her apartment with her friend, David Ron. Now, David was also a student at IU, and he also lived in Smallwood Plaza, which is where Lauren's apartment was. And the pair were headed to the five North townhomes where Jay Rosenbaum's apartment was located. <clears throat> now, Lauren, Jay, and David had plans to meet up with Jay's neighbor, who was Corey Rossman. And according to a couple of the sources that I've read for this week's case, the trio, and that's Lauren, Jay, and David, arrive at um, Corey's apartment and in Corey's apartment, there were approximately 10 other individuals who at the time were drinking heavily and using drugs. Now, David is actually going to um, leave the apartment around midnight. So he's going to leave Corey's and he's going to head back to Smallwood Plaza where he lives. And he reached the apartment by 1230. So he left at 12, arrives by 1230. And this is again on June 3rd, where he's going to be seen on surveillance entering Smallwood Plaza alone. Okay, so he's by himself. Lauren is not with him. And we know from surveillance footage that he does not leave his apartment again until 11 a.m. on June 4th. Like I said, this is confirmed by the surveillance video from the apartment. Now, <clears throat> at 1.46 a.m. on the morning of June 3rd, we're going to see surveillance video pick up Lauren and Corey as they enter Kilroy Sports Bar. Now, Lauren is actually going to gain access to this bar using a fake ID because at the time of her disappearance, Lauren's only 20. And we know that they are in the bar for 
a couple of minutes, like 45 minutes. Um, I know that's a little bit more than a couple. So they're in there from somewhere between 1.46 a.m. and 2.25 a.m. And we know that because we're going to actually see Lauren on the sand-covered patio, which is outside of Kilroy's. And while she's out there, she's actually going to take her shoes off and she's going to put them off to the side along with her cell phone, which I mean, she's on sand and I believe she was wearing some kind of sandals at this point, but still nobody really wants sand in their shoes. So I get it. <coughs> Sorry. And she's also going to leave her cell phone. Now this is a very important piece of information that I want you guys to remember. She puts her cell phone down. Okay. And at 2:27. So it's now 2:27. Lauren is going to be seen <laughs> on surveillance, still barefoot, leaving the bar with Corey. And according to the source material for this week's case, the pair was reportedly heading back to her apartment. Now, Kilroy's is actually only a three-minute walk to Smallwood Plaza, where Lauren lived, and a, and. <clears throat> Excuse me, at 2.30 a.m., Corey and Lauren are going to be seen on the apartment's surveillance entering the complex. So we know that they leave at 2.27, Lauren's barefoot, and they head back to Lauren's apartment at 2.30. Like I said, three-minute walk, time frame, perfect, right? Well, when they get there, they're going to enter the lobby, and Lauren and Corey are going to end up being confronted by Zach Oates and three three other individuals. Zach is a friend of Lauren's boyfriend. Now, Zach is going to claim that he was concerned about Lauren being with Corey, but source material doesn't elaborate on why Zach is concerned that Lauren is with Corey. But what it does elaborate on is that Zach ends up punching Corey in the face. But that source material doesn't elaborate on whether or not this confrontation occurred in the lobby of the apartment building or if it occurred on the fifth floor where Lauren's apartment was. So <clears throat> by 2.30 in the morning, we know that Lauren has made it back home. But Zach punching Corey causes Lauren and Corey to leave the apartment complex. And like I said, I don't know if this occurred on the fifth floor or if it was in the lobby. But I'm thinking it occurred somewhere in the lobby because if it was on the fifth floor, why wouldn't they just go into Lauren's apartment? I don't know. There's a lot of questions. And Zach punching Corey in the face even prompts more questions. One, does... Zach think that Lauren doesn't know Corey well enough and that's why, you know, Zach was worried. Or, um, you know, does Zach know Corey better than Corey knows Lauren and Zach is concerned about Corey being with Lauren? I don't know. But it's, it's, it's very confusing why Zach does take it upon himself to punch Corey in the face. Like, it... Corey was escorting Lauren back to her apartment. For all intents and purposes, we know that Corey is just walking Lauren home. But Zach punching Corey causes the pair to leave. And since the pair have left the apartment, it sets in motion a chain of events that is going to alter Lauren's life, 
Corey's life, her family's life, and everybody who loved Lauren. Now, 10 minutes later, sometime between 2.40 to 2.42 a.m., Lauren and Corey are going to be seen leaving Smallwood Plaza. And in this video, we're going to see Corey supporting a very intoxicated Lauren. And an unidentified witness will come forward during some point in the investigation. And he's going to say that they were sitting on some steps and um, sometime between 2.42, so after they leave the apartment, and 2.48, they're going to witness Lauren fall over and hit her head on the ground. And if you have ever had somebody you know hit their head on the ground, it makes a very loud sound. And it is an unmistakable sound. So if he heard her hit her head, and we don't know what steps this this unidentified witness was sitting on so was it the steps that led out of the apartment and that's why he was close by and he heard it or was he a little bit further and still heard it I don't know but what I do know is that <clears throat> Lauren's condition can only go down from here we know she's intoxicated and now we have to worry about some head trauma now around 248 Lauren and Corey are going to be seen entering an alleyway between College Avenue and Morton Street. And again, Lauren is going to fall. This time, she's going to be seen falling on the surveillance video, and she's going to fall on her face. And in the video, Lauren does not attempt to brace herself with her hands or try and stop the fall. So this leads me to believe that coupled with the intoxication from the night and the head trauma she's her cognitive abilities are impacted and they're altering her reflex times now a few minutes later at 251 Corey and Lauren are going to be spotted again on a security camera and this time they're going to be exiting the alleyway that they were just in and this time they're still near Smallwood Plaza but instead of heading back to Lauren's apartment or I don't know, I'm calling an ambulance, the pair head towards an empty lot near the five north townhomes where Corey lived. And at some point during this walk to the townhomes, Lauren's purse and keys are tossed aside or they're dropped. It, it wasn't very clear in source material if she dropped them or if Corey threw them. But they are found by someone at a later point in time. <clears throat> now, Corey and Lauren are then going to enter Corey's apartment, and his roommate, Michael, was home when the pair arrived. And from everything that I've read, it seems as if the other individuals who were in Corey's apartment earlier in the night were no longer there. And according to Michael, Corey was extremely drunk and ended up vomiting on the carpet as he stumbled up the stairs to his room. Now, Michael gets Corey into his room and then he heads back down to the living room to talk to Lauren. And at this point, Michael is going to try and convince Lauren to stay the night and just sleep on the couch. And part of me at this point, you know, is like, good on you, Michael, you know, because like 
he's he obviously can tell that she is inebriated and um is concerned about her leaving but lauren declines to stay the night and another part of me is like okay we know she declined why not make her you know like why not be like no dude like i think you should stay or something or why not walk her back to her apartment and i don't know I don't know why he doesn't offer to walk her back. I don't know if he does offer to walk her back and she declines. I I don't know. None of us know. We're only going off of what Michael has um, said. Now, we do know that Michael calls Jay Rosenbaum, who was with Lauren earlier in the night. And he, again, lives next door. So Michael calls Jay to see if he'll actually walk Lauren to her apartment. Because Lauren was actually trying to get Michael to party and drink with her. Michael states that he didn't want to drink. This is kind of like a he said, he said situation because we don't have Lauren's side of the story. So even though Michael calls Jay, Jay's not actually home. So he ends up returning back to Five North to get Lauren and allegedly take Lauren back to her apartment in Smallwood. And at this point, Jay states that he noticed that Lauren had a bruise under one of her eyes. Now, this is most likely from when she either fell and hit her head or more likely from when she fell and fell on her face. But Lauren told Jay that she doesn't actually know how it happened. So, Again, I'm concerned that there is some head trauma going on um, <clears throat> because she can't remember that she fell. But that could also be because she's intoxicated. But the head injury, definitely concerning. So Jay arrives around 3 in the morning. But we're going to fast forward an hour and 15 minutes to 4.15. There's... No evidence or any reporting regarding what happened during that hour in 15 minutes. But we do know that sometime in that hour and 15 minutes, somebody is going to make two phone calls. To um, One is going to go to David, who does not answer because from what we know, David is at his apartment and he is sleeping. And then the second is going to go to an unidentified friend who, again, does not answer the phone. But according to Jay, Lauren is the one who allegedly makes these phone calls. But there is no proof. The last we know that Lauren was officially alive was 3 a.m. Okay, so I'm not saying Jay has something to do with it. I'm just saying an hour and 15 minutes goes by and we don't know what happened in those hour and 15 minutes. And 15 minutes after that last phone call is made at 4.30 a.m., Jay states that Lauren leaves his apartment and he watched from his balcony as she headed to her apartment. Now, let me remind you that Michael called Jay. Jay returned back to Five North to come get Lauren, and he was supposed to take Lauren back to her apartment an hour and a half ago, right? 
So at 3 a.m., Jay was supposed to walk Lauren home. It's now 4.30, and instead of walking Lauren home, he watches as she, from his apartment balcony, watch as she heads to her apartment. And he states that he last saw her the intersection of College Avenue and 11th Street, and she was heading south on College Ave. Now, <clears throat> I want to remind you of a couple of details. Lauren is still barefoot at this point. Lauren is intoxicated. Lauren has fallen at least two times and hit her head so severely that she had a bruise on her face. And she was in no condition to be walking anywhere. And Jay was supposed to be walking her home. So why does he wait an hour and a half after returning to his apartment to come get her and walk her home? Why does he wait and just let her leave by him by herself? That doesn't make sense. I smell something fishy. And I want to know why if he was too intoxicated to walk, why didn't he call her a cab? Why didn't he convince her to stay? I don't know. I have a lot of questions for you, Jay. Now, during the investigation into her disappearance, Jay's going to be questioned by police. And he's going to be asked to submit a polygraph test. Now, Jay's going to lawyer up. And I don't blame him. I mean, anytime cops want to talk to you, definitely should get a lawyer. I recommend it. Now, Jay's attorney is going to state that <clears throat> he passes said polygraph test. But, like any good true crime addict would know, that a polygraph means absolutely nothing and they are not admissible in court. But his willingness to take the polygraph test maybe is a good sign. You know, maybe it's a show of good faith that he was not responsible for what happened to Lauren but I don't believe it <clears throat> I don't know now sorry y'all this COVID I told you I'm, I'm winded now five minutes after Lauren allegedly leaves Jay's apartment another um, witness is going to come forward and this individual was sleeping on the street at the time when he reportedly heard a woman screaming just west of where Jay reportedly had last seen Lauren. However, while diving into this case, I was unable to confirm the validity of this tip and if the authorities were ever able to um, verify it and, you know, kind of really lock this tip down. Now, the man's identity was also never verified. However, it is assumed to be a gentleman by the name of Franklin Road Dog, Road Dog, excuse me, Crawford, who sadly passed away just a few days after Lauren disappeared. So authorities believe that this is the witness in question, but they're not sure and they're unable to verify since this gentleman has sadly passed away. So any information that Franklin may have had with him um, in regards to what happened to Lauren um, that night have sadly died with him. And um, we know that Jay was the last one to allegedly see Lauren at 4.30 in the morning. And 4.30 is going to be a very important time because this is when Lauren's friends become 
extremely concerned about her whereabouts and they're actually going to report her missing to the Bloomington Police Department. Now, there's a piece of information that I do want to interject right here. So, we know Jay states that he last saw her leaving his apartment at around 4.30, but according to reporting by CNN, there is no sign of Lauren on any surveillance footage from 3 a.m. onwards. So this puts Lauren and Corey leaving Kilroy's sports bar about 15 minutes prior, about 2.45, and heading down the alleyway around 2.50 in the morning. Again, this is the last confirmed sighting of Lauren on any surveillance footage. So, like I said earlier, Jay came to get Lauren at 3 a.m., allegedly. And allegedly at 4.15 a.m., she leaves. But we don't have have her on surveillance footage from 3 a.m. onward. But we can... We can piece her timeline together bit by bit by bit from 12 to 3 because she's on surveillance and then poof, she's gone. Just saying, something is a little sus. Something is off. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit in the timeline to the afternoon of June 4th when Lauren's boyfriend is going to try contacting her but those attempts are going to be unsuccessful. Now he's going to end up being contacted actually by an employee of Kilroy Sports Bar to let him know that the phone he was calling was still at the bar because if you remember when Lauren left the bar the night before she left her phone and her shoes there. So this point in time, this is when Lauren's boyfriend is going to learn that she is missing. And Lauren's roommates and her boyfriend actually begin to um, set forth a, a plan to look for Lauren that afternoon and they're going to actually retrace her steps and try and find her and they're going to start at Kilroy's because they know that um, that was one of the last places that she has been but from this point forward there's very little in regards to police involvement Um, and that's I'm assuming because of the age old well she's an adult she can be missing if she wants type deal that we often see from the police but what we do know is that somebody whether it's Lauren's roommates or Lauren's boyfriend contact Rebecca Lauren's sister and they're going to tell her hey we can't find Lauren and um so Rebecca is going to then um begin calling family members and tell them, hey, listen, Lauren's boyfriend and her roommates, they can't find Lauren. So then she calls their father, Robert, to tell him, hey, dad, Lauren's missing. No one's seen or heard from her since 4.30. And um, Robert's going to actually call Jesse, Lauren's boyfriend, who was actually at the police station at this time. And it wasn't very clear why he's at the police station but I'm assuming it's because his girlfriend is missing 
and he's trying to get some help from the police to try and find her. Now, after speaking with Jesse, Robert and his wife, Charlene, are going to start calling local hospitals to see if maybe Lauren is in one of those hospitals. And after striking out, trying to find her in any of the local hospitals, Robert and Charlene head to Bloomington from Scarsdale, New York. The following day on June 5th, Lauren's disappearance is going to begin trending on various social media sites and the Indie Star reports that there was a Twitter account that was dedicated to finding Lauren. And this Twitter account amassed over 20,000 followers and overnight, like 20,000 overnight, and it began attracting attention from various celebrities, including Kim Kardashian and Ryan Seacrest. Now, three days later, on June 6th, we're actually going to see volunteers from the community begin arriving at Smallwood Plaza and fanning out from there to look for Lauren. And these searches would continue daily for weeks. And unfortunately, they would yield very little evidence. And two days later, on June 8th, Bloomington police would receive their first anonymous tip that would bring them to Lake Monroe. Now, this lake is south of where Lauren disappeared from, and according to the source material, the police were acting on a very specific tip. Unfortunately, I could not find out what this tip was, but the police found it credible enough that they brought out a dive team to search the waters around the Four Winds Resort and Marina. And police would also make announcements this day, stating that there are 10 persons of interest in Lauren's disappearance. Corey Rossman and Jay Rosenbaum are at the top of that list. Now, June 9th, the Spira family is going to offer up a $100,000 reward for the safe return of their daughter. And according to reporting by the Indy Star, Corey Rossman and Mike Beth, who is Corey's roommate, are asked to submit DNA samples to police. And I couldn't find any information on if Mike submitted his DNA willingly or if the police ended up needing to get a court order. But Corey does willingly give his DNA to police. Um, And Mike also gives his DNA. I'm just not sure if it was... um, willing or if he needed that court order. Now, a few days later on June 11th, Lauren's story is going to air on America's Most Wanted. And her segment is going to generate upwards of 350 tips. Sadly, though, none of them were credible enough to lead to the identification of a suspect or even lead police to where Lauren potentially might be. And between the news segments, the TV broadcasts, and the traction on social media, this kept a fire lit under investigators and searchers to keep up their efforts for looking for Lauren. And at one point, we're actually going to see an upwards of 1,000 searchers come out and search Bloomington and the surrounding areas looking for anything regarding any information on Lauren's disappearance or where Lauren could potentially be. Now we're going to fast forward to June 14th when police are going to name their first suspect, not a person of interest, an actual suspect. And police are going to share a photo, excuse me, of a white truck that was in the area 
um, when Lauren went missing. Now, James McClish is actually going to see this truck on the news and come forward as the owner because he's like, hey, man, that's that's my truck. Eventually, he's going to be cleared of any wrongdoing. And on June 25th, family members are going to organize what they're going to refer to as Find Lauren Day in Bloomington. And hundreds of volunteers are going to come out and help conduct a massive search for Lauren. Sadly, nothing would be found. And throughout the rest of June, a map detailing Lauren's movements the night she disappeared would be put together. And I will put this map on Instagram for y'all to look at. And to put this map together, authorities are going to use the surveillance footage that I have used as source material. Um, and they're going to compile it together. They're going to put this map and this timeline together. And like I said, the timeline and the surveillance footage is a lot of where this week's source material was gathered from. So again, I will attach this in the show notes. It's going to be under sources and the map is actually going to be on Instagram. And between June and July, the Hoosier National Forest is going to be searched in the end of the Indiana University is going to increase the reward money by $50,000. And this is going to bring the total to $150,000 for any information regarding Lauren's location or an arrest in her abduction. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be the first mention of foul play that I have seen while researching her disappearance. And while I knew that it most likely was not of her own volition and I was very suspicious from the beginning. This is the first time that authorities mention it. So now we're going to fast forward to August 16th and police and FBI agents are going to team up and they're going to search the Sycamore Ridge landfill where Bloomington's trash is delivered. And over the course of nine days, they're going to sift through more than 4,100 tons of trash. I don't know why they ended up searching there. I mean, I can guess, you know, they they get a warrant and they're looking. Like maybe somebody did something to Lauren and they threw her clothes or they threw something else that was on her. It's not her purse because her purse was found. It's not her shoes and her phone. So it's either going to be Lauren herself or her clothes. That's what they're looking for in that trash landfill they don't find anything which I don't know is it if is it is it a good thing or is that a bad thing because they don't find her thrown out like trash which I mean that's a good thing but they also don't find any any evidence leading to could this lead us to where Lauren is like a murder weapon or a bloody towel or something so I don't know it, it it's kind of one of those rock and a hard place type things now Charlene Spear wrote an open letter to her daughter on September 3rd on the family blog and not only is it to her daughter but it might be to whoever may have had her or is responsible for her daughter's disappearance and she writes quote do you think this is a game this is no game. We're in this for the long haul. Do you think we're going to walk away without finding answers? Do you think we're going to rest until we find Lauren? We will not. End quote. And I say that this is to her daughter. Even though source material says it's 
to whoever may be responsible for her daughter's disappearance, but it's also to her daughter because that is the most mama bear thing to say because she is one letting the people responsible for her daughter's disappearance know that she's going to find you. She, she will find you come hell or high water. This woman is going to find out what happened to her daughter and she's letting her daughter know, Hey, baby girl, I'm coming for you. Like Liam Neeson and taken anybody. Hello. Anyway, so she's not playing and she's not stopping looking for her daughter. And it's December 31st, 2022. And Charlene is still looking. She is still pushing. And 20 days later on September 23rd, Bo Deidel, who is the head of the investigation firm that was hired by the Spira family, he's actually going to go on Good Day New York. And he's going to say, quote, he thought he was talking to Gomer Pyle out there, end quote. This quote is regarding the Bloomington police chief after he refused to share information regarding Lauren's disappearance. Now, what happened between September 3rd and September 20th, I don't really know. I know that the Spear family hires Bo and his investigation firm to try and find Lauren. And Bo is going to go out to Indiana, um, to Bloomington, and is going to want to talk to the police chief. And whomever Gomer Pyle is, I don't know. And I've been too sick to look it up. So if somebody wants to let me know, that would be great. Um, But he's later going to apologize for this remark regarding the police chief. So I'm assuming it's derogatory in nature. I don't, I don't know. But I do know is that the police chief is not sharing information, which I don't know why. I don't know. Now we're going to fast forward a couple of months and we're going to go to November 1st. And Jay's attorney is going to release a statement stating that Jay provided authorities with a full statement, allowed authorities to search his home, provided them with a DNA sample, and consented to a polygraph test. And one of Jay's author- excuse me, attorneys also stated that Lauren's parents and Jay had a sit-down talk in which he was frank with her parents and told them stuff that they may or may not have wanted to hear. Robert later told Indianapolis Monthly that he and Charlene met with Jesse, which is Lauren's boyfriend, and Jay. So they met with Jesse and they met with Jay. However, Corey flat out refuses to meet with Lauren's parents. And if you remember, Corey is the last person confirmed to have been seen with Lauren. Yes, we. Mike says that he's seen her, and Jay says that he's seen her, but Corey is the only person that we can verify through surveillance footage that was with Lauren at 3 a.m., and Corey is refusing to meet with Lauren's parents. That is suspicious. That is suspicious. That is all I'm going to say on that because I don't, I don't want to be sued. So on February 24th of 2012, the Spira family is going to raise the reward money to $250,000 for any information regarding Lauren's recovery. And at this point, her it seems like her family 
is, um, sorry, is coming to the realization that Lauren may not be alive anymore. We still don't know where Lauren is though. And in April, so just a few months later, in April of 2012, human remains are going to be found in Southern Illinois and family members are, are fearing the worst that this is Lauren and they're going to test those remains against Lauren's DNA and it's going to be confirmed that they are not hers. Now, since Lauren disappeared, the unidentified remains of at least five other individuals have turned up in Indiana and the surrounding states. And each time a set of those remains were found, it would prompt yet another story of how Lauren was still missing. So I just also want to interject here. Five other unidentified remains have been found in addition to Lauren being missing. So that's six women, right? Is, is there like a serial killer on the loose here? Like, does anybody else feel that way? I don't know. So we know that each time they find an unidentified set of remains, a story about how Lauren is still missing is going to circulate. So her story is still out there. And later in April of 2012, Corey is finally going to respond to an email sent by him to Indiana, Indianapolis monthly. I'm sorry stating that he does not normally talk to reporters and he goes on to say quote if you have some way to prove my name wouldn't be slandered and what I say gets across and I am not portrayed in the terrible light the lying slanderous people connected to this case have portrayed me in then I'd consider talking to you otherwise I have nothing to say end quote Um, so you are more worried about these quote, lying slanderous people in your name than letting everybody know what happened to Lauren. What are you hiding? Corey, the people would like to know what are you hiding? Fast forward a year to May 23rd, 2013, when we're going to see Corey Rossman come out and claim that Lauren's parents are harassing him about their daughter's disappearance and what happened to her that night. I'm sorry, I don't think that's harassment. And if you, and if they ask you to tell the police what happened that night, I, I, I just, I don't see how that's harassment. They just want to know what happened. They want to know just where their daughter is and according to surveillance footage like I've stated a few times now he was the last person to have been seen with her so he has vital information that he's just not sharing and the following month on June 26th Lauren's parents are gonna file a civil suit against Corey Jay and Mike and in the suit the family is gonna allege that the three men failed in their duty to care for Lauren and given that she was intoxicated and didn't do enough to help her I was not there that night I don't know everything that happened what was said what was done but according to Mike 
He did try to convince Lauren to stay that night and sleep on the couch, to which she refused and left. So, I mean, could that have fulfilled his duty to care? I mean, I guess, maybe. He can't force her to stay. Could he or should he have called her a cab? Probably, yes. But we don't know the circumstances surrounding that conversation. Maybe she was just like, no, I'm not staying. I'm leaving. Bye. And left. And he didn't have time to react. And I mean, he can't force her because then at that point, it's it's a, it's a sticky situation. So I, I, I don't know. But by December 2013, a judge is going to dismiss the suit against Mike. So the judge is going to feel kind of the same way I did. Mike kind of sort of did fulfill that duty to care. And from what I understand, Mike was only briefly interacting with Lauren. So I don't know. So in December, the suit against Mike is going to get dropped. And later that month, um, so by the end of December, a judge is going to rule that the lawsuit against Jay and Corey, however, can move forward. And according to reporting by Fox 59, the family hopes that this lawsuit is going to force both of these men to testify under oath what happened to Lauren. We know that Jay and the family have had a sit down and they've had a conversation, but we know that Corey won't open up about what happened that night. And honestly, I think that's why the parents are like, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to force you to tell me what happened. And I don't think they really wanted to sue him for money. I think they wanted to sue him for information. And it's going to go back and forth from January to April in regards to the lawsuit. It's going to bounce around. And then a year later in October of 2014, a federal judge is actually going to dismiss the lawsuit altogether. And attorneys for Jay and Corey are actually going to point the blame at Kilroy's sports bar, which I don't see how. I mean, I guess I can see how because they allowed her to go in with a fake ID, but if it's a good fake ID and they don't have the technology to test to see if it's a fake ID, I don't know. I think it's just kind of, that's what lawyers do when they're like, well, it wasn't our client. We're, we're going to point the finger at somebody else. I don't know. From that point on, there's not going to be a lot of movement regarding Lauren's case until April of 2015, when another Indiana University student is going to be found dead. So that's, what, the, the seventh woman at this point in a four-year time span? Um, she's going to be found 10 miles outside of Bloomington. And her name is Hannah Wilson. And her murder opened up what police referred to as, quote, an avenue of investigation, end quote, in Lauren's case. Now, Hannah was also last seen at Kilroy Sports Bar the night she disappeared, but Hannah was last seen leaving the bar in a cab. So similar circumstances, but also different at the same time. And in May of 2015, Daniel Messel is actually going to be arrested for Hannah's murder. And he is going to be later convicted. And police are going to look for any possible connection between Messel and Lauren's disappearance. However, it doesn't seem like they were able to find any. And it also doesn't seem like they were able to tie Messel to the other women that um, were found um, 
earlier in uh, the investigation. So it seems like Hannah's murder is in almost like an isolated incident separate from Lauren's disappearance and those five unidentified um, remains that were found after Lauren disappeared. Now, um, in January 2016, we're actually going to see a big kind of like shift in the case and police and FBI are going to team up again and they're going to raid a property near near Martinsville, Indiana, and they're going to raid it in connection to Lauren's case. Now, this property was um, registered to a sex offender by the name of Justin Matthew Waggers, and according to reporting by Fox 59, police wanted to get DNA from him, and they also received a tip that he may have played a role in her disappearance. Now, during the search of um, Justin's property, which he shared with his grandfather, um, so he has not officially been named a suspect, and his attorney does say that he had nothing to do with Lauren's disappearance, but both um, Justin's father and grandfather, that acknowledge that Justin did have some legal problems in the past, but they cannot imagine that he would be involved in Lauren's disappearance. However, um, reporting by WTHR 13 says that Justin's father showed their cameras um, some areas of the property that was searched by the FBI and other law enforcement um, agencies with uh, some excuse me cadaver dogs and they say that um, the cadaver dogs did hit on some um, spots at the they hit on some spots on the property now According to reporting by WTHR 13, there was a camper that was on the Wagner's um, property. And according to reporting, the cadaver dogs um, were hitting on this corner of the camper where allegedly the previous owner of said camper had um, died inside. So they were thinking that... um, that's why the dogs were hitting on this particular corner. Um, and authorities do actually pull everything out of the camper and they're digging around inside and they're searching, um, you know, and they're, they're trying to find any evidence that Lauren was in this um, camper. But like I said earlier, he was not named a suspect and there is... Um, no proof that Lauren was on the property. Now, <coughs> excuse me, um, police, FBI, and these cadaver dogs do end up spending several hours searching the grounds and the trailer, but um, it doesn't seem like they found anything. Now, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that Justin is an all-around crappy dude. He is a registered sex offender and has been since 2007. His ex-wife has a order of protection against him since 2011. There are over 44 phone calls between two days um, where he threatened his ex-wife. So he's not a good dude. 
he's not. He has four counts of battery charges, two um, sexual gratification um, charges. He has exposed himself to a 15-year-old girl. So, like I said, not a good dude, you know, and his family admits that he is not a good dude and that, you know, there are issues surrounding him. But they insist that he had nothing to do with Lawrence's disappearance. Um, and they do hope that they can find whoever, you know, is responsible for her disappearance. But I don't know. Um, like I said, you know, he is the first, well, not the first, but the second um, person who has been named as a suspect but I don't know um, if any more information has been put out in regards to Justin and his or not involvement in Lauren's case. Um, and they did search Justin's mother's property, which is in Trafalgar. I hope I'm saying that right. It's and again, using WTHR 13 um, report as a source, it did say that um, there were no remains found at his mother's property. So there is, you know, um, no solid connection between Justin and Lauren's disappearance. But um, we do know that it was searched. And that's really all I have regarding Justin and his possible involvement in Lauren's disappearance. Now I want to discuss theories surrounding Lauren's disappearance. And there are a couple theories that I want to touch on. And one of them surfaced just last year in 2021. However, there isn't much credibility surrounding this theory, but I do want to note it because I don't want to leave anything left um, unsaid and I essentially no stone left unturned. Okay, so let's get into this theory. It's what I'm calling the TikTok theory. And in 2021, a TikTok video was put together by creator Ty the Crazy Guy. And I want to make it known that there is no hate or shade being thrown to him from me. I'm just kind of compiling everything and telling you guys. So in the video, Ty talks about how there are female dealers for an online gambling service. And he states that some women look like they're actually being forced to participate in these games. And he shows a clip of a woman passing out. And then three men come into um, the video and they remove her from the table that she was sitting at. And these men actually wheel this woman off in her chair. And the creator of the video, uh, Ty, says that... Um, this video leads some people to think that the woman in question was actually tied to the chair. However, I just kind of want to play a little bit of devil's advocate right here because maybe it was easier for them to wheel her off in the chair. I mean, 
instead of carrying her like i've passed out before and you're essentially dead weight at this point it's very hard to move somebody who has passed out like i said devil's advocate and that i'm only saying this because i've actually seen another video about the same online gambling service that they claim in Ty's video and one of the dealers actually makes a video on her personal TikTok disputing some of the conspiracy theories surrounding this online gambling service. Now I have not done a deep dive into this gambling service because it was a rabbit hole that I was just not ready to go down and I really don't think it's going to help us find Lauren. So now I want to get back to Ty's video. Okay, so <clears throat> like I said, it's, it's, he created this video, but it's not the original video that Ty posted from what I've seen has been taken down. And in the video um, that was originally taken down, we see a woman wearing a mask, like, like, like a black mask This is what it was. And he states that most of the women um, in this dealer's service are not wearing a mask, but this particular woman is. And I will admit that the woman wearing the mask looks sickly. Her eyes look like she can barely keep them open, and they have these deep, dark circles under them. Now, it seems like... Like I said earlier, the original video is taken down and it's a green screen of a video of a video of a video. I don't know. There are like five little like circles, like like the original video was screen recorded and then that video was recorded and so on and so forth. So like I said, I don't think the original video was up. Now the creator Ty um, does in his video put a still shot of the woman in um, the, the dealer setting and against a photo of Lauren and states, quote, I'm not claiming this is her, just putting this in since many suspect some of these women may be missing, end quote. Now, I do know that Lauren's mother has seen either the original video or the video of the video, and she has passed it along to authorities because she, <clears throat> excuse me, has said that she wants to make sure that they are aware of anything that could potentially lead them to finding out where Lauren is or what happened to Lauren. And like I mentioned earlier, I did see a video of a video and in the still shot of the woman in question and Lauren, they are side by side. And I personally don't think that this woman is Lauren. I do think that this woman may be in trouble um, you know, be, just because of how sickly she looked, but in regards to it being Lauren, I'm just not sure. The foreheads don't look like they're the same shape, and the shape of the eyes are different. The The still photo of the unidentified woman, she looks like she has more rounder eyes, whereas Lauren has more like almond-shaped eyes, in, in my opinion. Now, that's the TikTok theory, um, and you can actually look it up on TikTok still currently, and it, it's wild. Um, but there are a lot of great um, videos put out by multiple creators um, kind of detailing Lauren's case. So if you want to look into it, just type in Lauren Spear on TikTok and 
dozens upon dozens of videos are going to pop up. Now, I want to move on to our next theory. And that theory is that Lauren was abducted by a stranger the morning um, that she left the five North Town homes on her way back to Smallwood. And we have yet to find her. Um, and that's kind of, that's really all there is regarding that theory. There really wasn't much um, in the way of reporting to support this theory. Now, the next theory is that her boyfriend, Jesse, had something to do with her disappearance. <clears throat> However, Jesse wasn't even in Bloomington the night that she disappeared. But that doesn't mean that he couldn't get one of his friends to do something. He couldn't hire somebody to do the dirty work for him. But there's no evidence to suggest his involvement. So I don't want to imply that he was involved. And according to Jesse, he did exchange some text messages with Lauren prior to her disappearing. And in those messages, Lauren said, quote, she was going home and going to sleep, end quote. And Jesse said, quote, if you wake up, call me, end quote. Now, I was unable to find when these messages, excuse me, were allegedly exchanged, if they were before Lauren went out or after she went out. And if they occurred after she went out, it would have been sometime while she was at Kilroy's. Because if you remember, she left the phone at Kilroy's. So it could potentially have been her plan that she was texting him as she was getting ready to leave Kilroy saying, hey, I'm on my way home. I'm going to go to sleep and set her phone down and then ends up leaving Kilroy's and forgetting the phone. But I don't know. Now, another theory I've seen is that Jesse sent Zach and his face punching posse to take Lauren and they were actually mad that Corey was with her and they couldn't take her, which is why Corey ends up getting punched in the face. Now, I've only like seen this theory in like one really obscure article, so I'm not sure if I believe in it, but it does kind of like circle back to the theory that Jesse was involved, but I don't know. Now, before we get into our final theory, I want you guys to know something important about Lauren. She had a rare heart condition called long QT syndrome, which can cause fast and chaotic heartbeats. And this syndrome required Lauren to take daily medication. And this is important to note because the final theory surrounding where Lauren could be or what happened to her has to do with her alleged drug use. And the alleged drug use is is going to play in with her heart condition. Now, according to reporting by Fox 59, Jay would tell investigators that on the night of his party, the night Lauren went missing, either Lauren or David, wasn't very clear, said to him that they had crushed up clonopin and snorted it. Now, clonopin is used to treat and control seizures, but users who take it that don't need the drug have been known to feel relaxed and calm. Now, depending on what medication Lauren was taking for her heart, there could be contraindications in regards to this clonopin, which is why I wanted to mention Lauren had this heart condition and did have to take medication. Now, Jay would also tell authorities that Lauren took cocaine on occasion, which could potentially be 
true. Seeing as investigators did actually find small amounts of cocaine in Lauren's room after she disappeared during their search in um, of her room to see if there was any clues that could lead them to where she may have gone. So now I want to talk about our final theory, and that theory surrounds her alleged drug abuse. Now, this theory states that she accidentally died of an overdose, and the guys that were with her that night disposed of her body because they didn't want to be implicated in her death, which, I mean, is possible. Corey was the last person to have seen her. Everybody who has seen her with Corey said that she was being supported by Corey. I don't know. This is just a theory, and we won't really know if this theory is actually what happened until Corey speaks up and tells investigators what happened that night while he was with her. So that's the final theory. Um, Now, I do want to talk about um, Lauren's drug and alcohol problem and how it may have been a factor in her disappearance. Um, and, and some people who are close to this investigation do believe that this was a factor because nine months before Lauren disappeared, she was arrested due to public intoxication. And this is when her family came to learn that like many other college towns, it had a dark side. And in an interview with ABC7 Chicago, Charlene, who, if you remember, is Lauren's mom, told reporters, quote, I don't think I realized to what degree, you know, it was just a little bit of a shock, end quote. After this arrest and her disappearance, Lauren's family really learned that Bloomington had a rampant alcohol problem and a thriving drug scene, which, according to Jay and Corey, Lauren was allegedly a part of. Again, we're seeing that mention of drug use. And now Jesse's mom would actually um, say in an interview about how Jesse had threatened to tell Lauren's parents about her drug problem. But Lauren had allegedly threatened to break up with him. And she would later, or not later, but she would go on to say, that Lauren was a drug addict and essentially blaming Lauren's drug problem as the reason why Lauren disappeared. And I initially was going to put in here some of the things that she had said in the um, interview, but it was so cringe. It was so victim blaming that it made me so angry But I didn't want to completely leave it out, which is why I'm kind of briefly mentioning it and why I gave that kind of like trigger warning in the beginning about the victim blaming because Jesse's mom essentially blames Lauren and says that it is 100% Lauren's fault for everything that happened to her and not true, not true at all. Like, if you do have a drug or an alcohol problem, you don't deserve to have bad things happen to you. If you do have a problem, please reach out. Get help. It, please, for me, for your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, somebody, anybody who loves you, reach out. If you need help, please reach out. Now, I want to talk about former FBI agent Brad Garrett and how he believes that drugs played a role in Lauren's disappearance. 
and it was either the cause of her demise or it placed her in harm's way because of how impaired she was when she disappeared. But again, this is all speculation because nobody knows for sure if Lauren was involved in the drug scene and if she was just how deep her involvement ran. Yes, we know that cocaine was found in her room, but we don't know if it was hers. I mean, we we can speculate that it was hers because it's found in her room. So it it would make sense that it was hers. Now, before we end today's episode, I want to talk about the podcast Finding Lauren by Kyra Breslin. Kyra was actually a student at IU at the same time Lauren was. And in her podcast, she aims to focus on the case and all of the details that I may not have covered today. And it's solely dedicated to Lauren and Lauren's story. So if you have time, check it out. <clears throat> it's a good it's a good lesson. And Bloomington police urge anybody who was attending Indiana University in 2011 to come forward with any information, no matter how small or inconsequential you think it may be. And they also ask that if you saw anybody matching her description of a white female, four foot 11, weighing 95 pounds, wearing a white shirt and black leggings and barefoot in the early morning hours of June 3rd to June 4th, 2011, around 11th Street and College Avenue, to please call the Bloomington Police Department at 812-339-4477. Or you can call Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana at 317-262-TIPS. <laughs>